right, welcome to season three of Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is where we talk about the CBS 1990s television series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined by my host. Uh, my name is Lee, co-host. You know, we're co-hosts together. That's true. Yeah, we're equal. We're equal in regards. Yeah, and you know, since we're kind of doing introductions, our whole shtick is, you know, I've seen the show a lot. Uh, Charles, this is your first time watching each episode, right? Yeah, this is my first time seeing it, and we just got through, like, what I feel like is the preliminary seasons. Because they're so short, seven seven yeah. episodes. Mm-hmm. Is it seven or eight? Uh, well, the first one is eight. Second uh, second season is seven. There we go. Yeah. So now I feel like we're just really getting into Northern Exposure now. With the this is an actual yeah. This is an actual season. This is a proper comparable season now. to <laughs> to another television. You know, the length of another season in a, any normal television series, I guess. Yeah, I'm excited. Another standard of our podcast is we'll typically bring on an outsider, like a friend or acquaintance who has never seen the show before, kind of like Charles, but except they've never seen a single episode. At the end of the episode, you'll hear from them, sort of the outsider's perspective, a fresh glance, you know, a fresh take. Maybe it's a little out of context and confusing for some, but uh, it always seems to <laughs> it always seem to be pretty pretty enriching to hear from. I already have a sales pitch whenever okay. I try to get oh, a yeah. guest on. Yeah, like first I have to explain. It's like, all right, we have a podcast. We talk about a 1990s <laughs> television series. It's called Northern Exposure. Your parents probably heard of it. You have it. We analyze each episode. I haven't gotten to the part where you're involved with yet. Hang on. We overanalyze each episode and I'm, I need you to watch this random episode and then you tell me your thoughts on it (laughs) and they're like i have to watch just the i can't start from the beginning or can i watch it on netflix how does that work you know yeah i've had unfortunately no (laughs) (laughs) i've had a good number of people ask me and like uh it's the what do you mean like i'm gonna have no context like yeah that that's the point you're gonna be you're not gonna understand any of this just go with it this is our whole this is like our our design (laughs) (laughs) all right so this yeah so this episode is titled The Bumpy Road to Love. I don't know if that's a reference to something. Well, I just typed it into Google, and and uh, there's a song called The Bumpy Road. Maybe it's called On the Bumpy Road to Love with uh, by Judy Garland and Walter Pigeon. At least that's who sings it. Um, oh. It's from the musical Listen, Darling, 1938. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I, I mean, amazing. I hadn't either. I haven't seen it, obviously, but I did watch that clip. It's available on YouTube. It's a nice song. How it pertains to this episode, I'm not quite sure, but... This has happened before, right? Where other episodes of Northern Exposure are, um, the title is referencing a song. Yeah, What I Did for Love. Um, right. Trying to think about the ones. Right. I, there's lots of musical references. I think that's the only one that's named after a musical, though, I have mm-hmm. to say. Um, yeah, gotta say, the showrunners, they love their musicals. And and, and it's uh, Maurice, who's sort of like the character that's fascinated with musicals. Um, I can't remember what episode when we were talking about Maurice... Uh, there was some episode in the second season where you asked me, why do you think Maurice is an astronaut? Like, we hadn't really talked about that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Since recording the second season, I, I watched Terms of Endearment, the James L. Brooks film, and Jack Nicholson plays a retired astronaut. <laughs> and I, I kind of I want to think that that sort of um, archetype of the uh, bum astronaut he sort of sprung out of that movie, Terms of Endearment. Like, that might have been the first... Uh, time hmm. that character was, de- and apparently the the movie is based on a book, Terms of Endearment. But that Jack Nicholson character is not in the book. It's a complete fabrication, an original, you know, fabrication by James L. Brooks. Oh wow! So this archetype has sort of like bled into popular culture, and we see it maybe through Maurice. 
you know, you don't see a lot of those characters now, though, like an astronaut character. Yeah, maybe that was like a fascination. I don't know. You know, no, <laughs> this is, here's here's a um, just a speculation. Like when you were kids, or when our parents were kids, you know, people want to grow up. I mean, kids today probably still want to grow up to be a firefighter, or an astronaut. That's like a really cool idea. Maybe um, celebrity culture has has sort of changed kids today, and celebrity is has changed itself, you know, being a musician uh, or, or something like that. It maybe takes more of the limelight for kids. I don't know. I'm not a kid. You're, I can't you're missing, talk for you're, them. You're missing out on the number one profession kids want to be, and that's that's YouTuber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's, you know, so there, there, are new, um, there are new archetypes, so maybe astronaut has kind of fallen on the wayside. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. But... <laughs> Season three, episode yes. one. Right, let's it looks get back like on it's track. spring or summer, but mm. it's definitely not winter anymore. And if we carry on from uh, yeah, the what finale was the, episode, what was the release two. date here? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so original air date September twenty third, nineteen ninety one. So they must have probably shot this around summer or late spring, and it's uh, starting to come out. Or maybe they just shot it a couple weeks ago. You know, you know, TV shows can and do oftentimes uh, have a very quick turnaround. You know. Yeah, you're right. I really like that they're continuing on from the last episode of season two. Yeah, it's almost as if, you know, maybe just a couple weeks later or a month later. Yeah. They pick up from that that same story thread of Rick. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that's okay. Yeah, it looks like there's a giant touched by Midas gold statue of Rick. (laughs) Yeah. So we're kind of greeted this episode... uh, Begins with its little opening gambit. Chris is sort of doing another eulogy of sorts for for Rick. It's not a funeral, but they're unveiling the statue of Rick, as you mentioned. And I love everyone's reaction, but Chris kind of verbalizes it. And who do we have to thank for that? Maggie. I think you all know she commissioned this statue, which is so, uh, it's almost lifelike. Yeah, he's he's just at a loss for words. He doesn't know how to describe it and... You know, he says, uh, you know, verbally. Yeah. <laughs> Has, you know, lifelike, I guess, is what you could say. <laughs> well, if we skip forward a little bit, uh, I had watched the deleted scenes, the six minutes of deleted scenes that they have yeah. on the DVDs. Okay. And there's even a scene of him talking about... Um, the funeral, <laughs> right? Yeah, like the, uh, the futility of fate. And he goes... Well, I think we talked about that already, though. <laughs> we kind of already touched on that. <laughs> yeah. So the editor, the editor at the editing bay is like, oh, great, I can cut this out. They've already talked about it. You know? <laughs> that was a deleted <laughs> scene. It's redundant at this point. Yeah. So it looks like that Maggie just has the biggest monument yet, because previously she had those small dioramas oh, of her right. past boyfriends. So yeah. this is like, the biggest one. That's not. I didn't even think about that, because I'm sure Rick will probably get a diorama, but this is the, a first, you know? She commissioned this statue. As, as we said, Chris uh, tries to term it, um, what do you say, almost li- almost lifelike, but Maggie and Joel have a whole conversation about it, sort of looking like a, a hood ornament or something like that, <laughs> unfortunately. I was going to say, I wonder if that was scripted for um, the statue to look like that or if that's just what they were able to come up with. And so they're like, okay, we have to write this in the script somehow. It looks a little <laughs> strange to have a life, a life-size or a larger-than-life-size statue of Rick. I wonder if it would have been cheaper just to paint the actor gold and have him just stand there. It wouldn't have looked like a statue, though. Well, no, it, it could. Have you ever been to like uh, like a large city or like New York, whenever there's like... Like street performers, yeah. Yeah, street performers. They kind of look like statues. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't buy it. I mean, and plus, not trying to discredit the actor of Rick, but... I don't know. I don't know if he could stand that long, you know. 
<laughs> stand still. <laughs> that is true. So we're also introduced to I thought it was going to be a new character. Like I honestly <laughs> thought I was like, oh, this is I was like this is awesome. This is a great way to introduce a character. But no, it looks like it's a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. But what happens here? Um a, a woman just from the crowd and she looks just from her appearance, she looks out of place. Mm-hmm. And by that I'm I'm having a difficult time like phrasing it, but okay. she was a conventionally attractive woman and she was dressed in proper attire and it looked like she just didn't belong in the town of Sicily. She looks she a little merged out of it. A little more hip, a little more young. She has like a braid in her hair, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's she's very pretty. Yeah, I don't I don't know. That's a good there is definitely a quality that we're missing here. There's some some descriptor. Maybe yeah, it'll come I'm, out, but Exactly. And I thought she was gonna be a new character, but no, it turns out that Rick was a dog. Wait, what? Oh, <laughs> like, Wait. oh my god! Sorry, you caught me off guard. Um, because, uh, oh man, this is definitely spoilers. Um, but there is an episode where where Rick is a dog. What? <laughs> well, let's just leave it at that. We'll get there later. <laughs> what? That's why. Whatever you said, that I was like, wait, did we watch the same episode? <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, listener, for that impromptu spoiler. But no, he's a dog in the sense that uh, he had affairs. Is that what you're trying to get at? Yeah, I don't mean that he's a, <laughs> a, a canine. <laughs> Though, you know, leave it up to the showrunners to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, she's <laughs> Joanne is the name of this character. She steps up. She's, she says she'd like to say a word. And the more she talks about Rick, the more evident and um, apparent it becomes that she wasn't like his sister or cousin. This was like, you know, she was. I think she says she was taking showers with him. Yeah, <laughs> this is where I had the theory. This is this is now my new theory. Okay, maybe Rick faked his death. Okay, wait. So Keep I thought going. about this. We, we never his see body, his dead body. No, it's mangled beyond <laughs> belief, and they all laugh at it because a satellite that crashed into it. So it's pretty easy to make a dead body out of that, in my opinion. <laughs> And maybe he just thought he got into too many affairs and he wanted a clean slate. So he was like, I'm just going to just gonna kill myself, fake it, just start a new life on the opposite end of Alaska, maybe in Mexico, just yeah. go, in, go south now. <laughs> wow, so, yeah. It's quite possible because we don't, yeah, we never see, I don't know. Well, I am very glad that Rick is back, you know, because he, he does appear in this episode in a, in a dream sequence. He does. Should we get into that? Uh, yeah. Well, let's kind of focus on this storyline, I guess. We're definitely uh, jumping around. So throughout this whole thing, Maggie obviously is trying to deal with, you know, she finds out that Rick was essentially had this whole other life without her. She ends up talking to this Joanne character who comes back for, I think, at least one scene. They're in mm-hmm. the brick. And it turns out there's a lot that Maggie didn't know about Rick. In their conversation, Joanne is kind of telling Maggie what she remembers of Rick and how their relationship was. And Joanne doesn't fully know yet that Maggie was completely, wasn't completely in the loop. Like she had no idea that this was going on behind her back. And it becomes apparent whenever um, Joanne gives her uh, sort of like a, some, what did she give her? Like a the Rick's gloves. gloves that she kept and then she hands over a bottle of something. Um, it's kind of wrapped in leather and Maggie asks, well, she says myopium. And I was really confused by that at first, but it turns out, I guess opium is a perfume. Is that right? Um, really? my guess. What, what, what my guess, 
my guess was that she used opium in a sense of like, it's kind of like my quote unquote drug and that it looked like a flask to me. Yeah. So I thought that she was giving him like liquor or something like that. And I was like, oh, like that's my drug of choice, my opium. <laughs> I took it as the metaphorical reason. Is there actually a perfume called opium? Well, it must be because, well, that's, this is why, this is my um, reasoning is uh, because Maggie was expecting this opium, quote unquote, maybe a brand name. And Joanne says, yeah, um, I got this for Christmas. He must have given you my Kalish or Kalesh, I don't know how to say it, which I'm assuming is a, is a perfume. That like, is like a he mixed. Perfume. Okay, there you go. So he mixed like the presents, the perfumes. Maggie prefers opium, while Joanne thinks it's a, uh, you know, she she wants something a little more delicate. She says that is a terrible name for perfume. Right, that is true. <laughs> That's why opium. Whatever she just like screamed like or she called out, oh my opium! I was like, what? <laughs> People die from that. That's <laughs> what. <laughs> it's maybe because it's very exotic and rare. I don't know. Sounds like an mm. exotic drug. Mm. I still don't think that's a good name for something. <laughs> uh, whatever. Well, we just we just make a podcast. We don't uh, design perfumes. So. <laughs> We're not the DEA. <laughs> um, so it looks like that Maggie takes it really terribly because she's got, in the next time that we see her, she's got tons of shot glasses stacked. Oh, yeah. She's on a bender. And the, the yes. more we see her in this episode, like the more messy her hair gets. She, yeah, she has a very awesome transformation, I think, just in like her hairstyle and her makeup in this episode. By the end, she's like in bed. Ruth Ann has like taken her home because she's like way too drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like not really wearing any makeup. So she's gone through this huge change of looks throughout the episode. Uh, let's talk a little bit about her bender. There's some there's yeah. some good ad work in here and some good <laughs> interactions. <laughs> Yeah, I got to say that for this entire episode, Ed is kind of sidelined. Yeah. There isn't a lot dealing with that. But Ed plays this, this particular scene really well because I think he's not putting his foot down, but for once he's kind of pointing out that he is indeed a man because Maggie goes on a whole rant about men. And at <laughs> yeah. the end, Ed says, uh, Maggie, I'm a man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Ed kind of has to remind Maggie that, you know, he's a man. She goes off and she's telling him, was like, oh, you know, men caused war. They caused all the terrible things. And the S and L thing is what she says, yeah. which, which I looked up the savings and loan crisis, I guess. Yeah. Before our time. <laughs> I didn't know about this. I thought this was really interesting. So I looked into it and the savings and loan crisis was something that happened in the 1980s and 1990s. And I'm not going to get really into it because it's a bunch of technical financial jargon that I don't <laughs> think people care about. But it basically, it let the savings and loan industry have capabilities like a bank without the regulations of a bank. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, that's never a good Cost, thing. like lots of financial collapse or something. Yeah, it causes terrible things. Anytime you don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why history never learns from this, but anytime <laughs> something like that happens. You got to regulate? Yeah, to some degree. This is very <laughs> reminiscent of the 2007 subprime mortgages, but mm-hmm. we're not we're not planning money. We're not here to dissect yeah. <laughs> financial inst- institutions. Yeah, the whole thing is she's just sort of like adding onto the list of atrocities that men have committed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ed sort of looks down at his lap, kind of a shameful look. Maggie asks him, what's wrong? He says, well, you know, Maggie, I'm a man. <laughs> He's like, feels guilty and ashamed of it. Shout out to the prop people, because those, those french fries look delicious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very delicious looking prop food. I think later in the episode, Ed um, is drinking some root beer, and Maggie, uh, Maggie like orders another round of drinks. What does Ed say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, no, she orders. She's like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll take a root beer with three fingers of gin. <laughs> yeah, like Ed tells Maggie, man, this root beer sure is good. Wouldn't you like to get a root beer, Maggie, <laughs> or something? 
And yeah, what is it? That's when she says, I'll take the root beer with three fingers and chin. Yeah. I like how Ed delivered that line, though, as if to say, hey, Maggie, calm down. You're drunk. <laughs> yeah. It's not, he's not saying like, I really do genuinely love root beer. He's not saying that. Yeah. He's, he's trying to get her to, um, to calm down a little bit. And the designated D&D comes in, Ruthann. Ruthann has some pretty cool stuff to do in this episode. Uh, I guess it's particularly just this one scene. but um, Yeah, I would say that her scene is the fulcrum of this episode. It is the central okay. thesis. Because Maggie's in the bed. She's trying to recover from her hangover or her her drinking. And Ruth pops in. Presumably, they're at Ruthann's place, right? Yeah, I, I didn't really get a good look around the set. I think they're just sort of in a bedroom. Yeah, I don't think we've seen this room before. Hey, just a quick punch and edit. Me and Lee were talking about whether this could be Maggie's house or Ruth Ann's house, and I wanted to lay out some reasons why it could be either. It could be Maggie's house simply because the studio would have had to build another set for Ruth Ann's house. Another reason it could be Maggie's is because there appears to be a portrait of a young man near the bedside that if you squint your eyes and tilt your head, it almost looks like Rick. And the final reason that it's Maggie's house is that during Ruth Ann's monologue, she picks up her sweater from a chair in the room and puts it on, implying that she's ready to leave after she's done speaking her final words. The reason why it could be Ruth Ann's house is because there's also black and white photos of children and soldiers, and the house decor is a bit old-fashioned. Ruth Ann tries to tell her uh, the story of her past with her husband and the infidelity that she had. Yeah. And at first, Maggie thinks that her husband had the infidelity because she's on a whole thing against men. And it yeah. turns out, no, it's actually, you know, the woman that caused, like, we're equally responsible, wh- whichever gender, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And she's saying that at the end, it's a lot more complex. Like, we just muddle through the troubles. Yeah, she's basically, like, the way she breaks it down is she's like, men are created one way, women are created another way. And the the whole crux of it is that we don't ever really understand each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that the whole story about her cheating on her husband with another man. Uh, I have the soundbite. It's, it's wonderful. Look, what I'm trying to say is that we can't know what's in another person's heart. We can't even know what's in our own. Life turns on a dime. And somehow we muddle through. So it's like what she's, what she's trying to say is, sort of like you can't fault someone else for following their heart because most of the time we can't even understand what's going on in our own feelings. But what do you what do you think about this? Is this like too forgiving for sort of like you're giving too much leniency to people who commit adultery? Or is this actually like a deep understanding of, of how the heart works? Hmm, that's a really good question. Uh, the way that I, um, I interpreted it was that even though that she made mistakes, she's not a genuinely bad person. Like we shouldn't write her off because of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to defend people that do cheat. I, I think it's a obviously a really terrible thing to do to another individual. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way that she is saying is that there aren't necessarily incredibly black and white situations. Like she had cheated gotcha. and it, it, it doesn't mean that only men cheat. Like women can also be responsible for mm-hmm. problems. And it, it ties into... Maurice's storyline, in my opinion, as well, which we haven't gotten to. When we get there, I'll try to tie it in. Okay. But I really like that it's Ruth Ann that's delivering this because I feel like that she hasn't had a lot of screen time. And for this to be her pivotal moment, it's really great. Yeah, she's she's some of her best moments. Um, I think we said in the first season, she's not really given much to do at all in the first season. In the second season, we get some um, some sort of wisdom, I guess, is is 
kind of her strong point, her her strong suit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like you know, there's the episode "All Is Vanity" when they talk about this dead body. So she she has something to say just because of her old age. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's probably the closest to death um, more than anyone else in Sicily because she might be the oldest person there that we've seen. Yeah, she's the wisest member. Yeah. So it's great to see that. And I think we'll get a little bit more of that. And we're finally starting to see Ruth Ann sort of become a a strong character. So if we follow this storyline all the way up to the end of it, we're going to get to another dream sequence. Yeah, you didn't think we could get all the way through a Northern Exposure episode without, you know, at least one dream sequence. And this is in heaven, I guess. Uh, Whoa, whoa, hang on. It's an important distinction. This is Maggie's heaven. Right. Because it looks like the Gross Point Country Club. Um, Rick is back. This is what we were talking about, (laughs) you know, just leading up to. Finally, you know, he was kind of disgraced in season two with only like, you know, a little bit of screen time. But even after his death, uh, they're honoring him with some screen time, which is great. Yeah. I thought he played this really well. This is something that like actors can really chew on, in my opinion, because he knows, Mm -hmm. oh, play this really loose. Like you're not real. It's acknowledged within the first sentence that I'm not Mm -hmm. real. Just be very casual and play it like that. And that's really fun. And I thought he did a great job in this scene. Yeah. I mean, I think I told you like just because I've seen the show before and I knew he he dies at the end of the second season. Anytime I see him, I I really kind of cherish that. Uh, because he's fun. He is a great character. I really liked him in the first season as well. Mm-hmm. And this is where he sort of drops the bombshell that he's, you know, uh, roughly slept with 2,500 women. Yeah, which is obviously a ridiculous <laughs> number. But I was giving this a lot of thought. And my over analysis of this is that this is Maggie's heaven. This is the things that she wants to hear. So maybe Rick's not telling the truth. Maybe she's saying stuff that she wants to be true. So she wants Rick to be this incredibly ridiculous adulterer who mm-hmm. slept with 2,500 women because it makes her feel better. So that's my theory hmm. behind this. Okay. I took it for for being, you know, we know that it's a dream from the get-go, but I took it for having some truth. I know that sounds wildly ridiculous, but... Almost that that number gives it a certain power and and something that it seems as if like no one could ever recover from that, but Maggie will recover from this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there's different ways to look at it. Obviously, anyone who watches it can have a different interpretation. Yeah. I think it works strongly both ways, actually. That's kind of interesting uh, that you brought that up. I like I like thinking of it as like this could be just what Maggie needs or maybe just what Maggie wants, you know, mm-hmm. in her head, the the number of women. <laughs> <laughs> to make him like a caricature of a cheater. <laughs> Rick also brings up a couple of Maggie's other um, dead boyfriends who he's met, I guess, in heaven, in this heaven, Glenn and Bruce. <laughs> There's always this running tally of names. And remember, I remember the, the show Bible kind of gets a little inaccurate, you know, with this list of... Uh, the different names for Maggie's boyfriends. Like it's not always the same in each episode. (laughs) And so, yeah, this is an episode where according to the show Bible, uh, the boyfriend's names are accurate. Glenn and Bruce, who Rick has met uh, in this version of heaven, they're also mentioned in slow dance at the, at Rick's funeral when they go through this sort of litany of, um, of Maggie's ex-boyfriends and the insane ways that they met their death, I guess. (laughs) 
Yeah, and he also points out that Maggie has been dating a lot of vagrants, like a, not vagabonds, but people that just are not steady. And then he suggests to her, you, you should be with somebody who is, and she says, Joel Fleshman. Yeah, he's, he's saying someone dependable. And it's actually Maggie who brings the answer. You're right. She says, what do you mean? Like someone like Joel? And Rick's like, exactly. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. So realistically, we just spent this entire episode going within the inner monologue of Maggie to have her come out the other side of wanting to be with Joel. And Joel is in no part instrumental in her changing her mind. Joel's, uh, Joel's off doing his own plot line. Mm-hmm. He has no idea that any of this has happened in the Maggie. And at the end, it circles back around to the pivotal storyline or like the main love storyline of Maggie and Joel, which I thought was really pleasant. Yeah, like sort of the overarching love story throughout all these episodes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that last scene is really cool. Um, yeah, Joel is in his office, I guess, trying to get out of these handcuffs. We'll get to it. Don't worry about it. We need to, <laughs> we need to circle back to that plot line. Uh, but let's just wrap this up while we can. So Maggie and Joel have their own sort of like little flirtatious moment. She can tell Joel that she really admires that he has no hidden agenda, no subterfuge, you know, whereas all of her other types of boyfriends, you know, Glenn and Bruce and Rick uh, had had some sort of secret that they were keeping from Maggie or they didn't seem to really be themselves maybe around her. Yeah. And Joel is someone who's brutally honest, you know? She finds that really refreshing. And yeah, sincerity really is something that I, I find, at least in my opinion, that's an overlooked quality. And I'm not saying that like you should be a total jerk and just say really hurtful things to people's faces. I mean, actually holding true to yourself, which Joel actually has. And doing that is also sort of a form of confidence. You know, you feel comfortable in your own skin, which is something that we, we found in the... Uh, what episode was that? Was that... um spring break where Joel is like kind of struggling with his own insecurities and at least by our analysis uh, with our with our co-host Jay you know we came to the conclusion that Joel maybe is uh, breaking out of his shell and getting comfortable in his own skin you know now that he's in Sicily do you remember this yeah that's a really great analysis of what you're saying and it's really good it shows that the characters are growing we're seeing this happen within them overall I really like that plot line of Maggie coming to terms it ends with them um, agreeing to have dinner. You know, there, there. You know, there's, there's so much in just the way they act the scene together. The text of the scene, it's a great. Um, we didn't really get a lot of um, Joel. I guess he sort of has his own plot line. Let's hop into that. Let's yeah. Talk let's about cycle that. back. Let's go all the way back to the fifth minute of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Let's all go right. Back to the beginning. Yeah. So what I was trying to get at is that. You know, we talked before on this podcast about how some of the best episodes of Northern Exposure sort of focus on Joel as being sort of the primary action, the primary point in the in the storyline of the episode. But while there's all these other overarching plot lines going on with the um, sort of the ensemble cast, and uh, this episode, you know, Joel does have his own sort of plot line, but I would say Maggie is probably the, the featured A plot, right? Yeah, I would say that Maggie's is the main one. Though that doesn't mean that I don't like Joel's yeah. more, because I do. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm also kind of excited. This, uh, you know, season three begins with uh, sort of Maggie sort of stepping into more of the spotlight, because obviously, you know, the past two seasons have been very. Um, Joel is in love with Maggie. She's in love with him. So it's, it's, they're kind of sharing the spotlight or, or their, um, like sexual tension, romantic tension is, uh, what seems to be driving the overarching plot. Yeah. 
And as a final note to that, I have to say that the way they wrote Maggie's plotline to come to the conclusion that she wants to be with Joel is very well done. I thought it was yeah. better than anything they had did in season one or season two that had done a similar premise where it was like mm-hmm. a, where Maggie is conflicted about her opinions about Joel. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is one where she constantly has his recurring dreams about Joel. Yeah. And she doesn't want to get on the plane. Yeah. Doesn't mm-hmm. want to get on the plane. Uh, I like the way they handled this much more. This is Tell me what sets cleaner. it apart. Uh, honestly, I think it's because they follow the standard narrative structure where we know that there's mm-hmm. a problem. Maggie is not okay with Rick cheating on her. She's coming to terms with it within herself. She goes down and she falls down a well. She, she comes down mm-hmm. into some sort of situation that's not yeah. looking good for her. And she climbs back out with some sort of change in perspective or another way to look at life and yeah. it finishes back up with her realizing that she wants to go with Joel. Whereas the other ones felt like they were more meandering to get to yeah. their point. This one is a standard how you would write a story. Right. I really like that. I think there are, um, that's a good point. I think there are benefits to both ways. We've talked before on the show how Northern Exposure does a great job of sort of like subverting your expectations sometimes. And the climax of any given plot line is usually kind of anticlimactic. Like it sort of seems like it's going to build into something. And then whenever there's like, okay, we got to finally get to the scene where this character confronts this character, you know, it happens or it doesn't happen maybe. But in the end, it's, it's just never super like a big, powerful moment. And this, the ending of this episode with, um, Maggie's storyline, um, whenever she asks Joel out for, to dinner, it's not like a huge um, fireworks, you know, explosion ending. No. But it does, um, conversely to a lot of the other things, like you're saying, it does kind of follow a more sort of like a normal plot <laughs> arc, which is, which is good. You know, like it's good to see that sometimes because sometimes, for better or for worse, sometimes it succeeds, sometimes it doesn't. The show has sort of anticlimactic um, wrap-ups. But this one, you know, very standard and, and uh, very effective. We were trying to talk about Joel. Let's get to yes, his Yes, we are plotline. trying to get go, it to him. <laughs> go ahead. You seem to really enjoy his um, his plotline here. Yeah. So how does it start? So I think he's making dinner. He's so, he's doing something in his house. Yeah. Did you did you catch a look at that? He's kind of like preparing a little charcuterie or something. Yeah. He's like <laughs> unwrapping a little summer sausage. And, Got some crackers. <laughs> <laughs> Probably going to pair it with a nice glass of uh, Merlot or something. What is the um, uh, Lafitte Rothschild, the thing they drink in Soapy Sanderson? Oh, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's preparing a nice dinner, going to have a good night in. And then he hears someone at the door and he thinks it's, it's like Ed. Some, like someone prowling. Yeah. Yeah. And a very good educated guess, yeah. nine out of 10 times. It yeah, would be Ed. <laughs> I'm a little upset that it wasn't Ed. You know, we didn't, we haven't seen Ed in this. I don't think we'd seen Ed yet in the in the episode. This is early no. on, and it turns out that he goes to the window and it's Adam. Yeah, and he says, "Is that you, Adam?" Or he says something, and Adam's response is, "No, it's the Fuller Brush Man." Do yeah. you know this? Did you catch that reference? Or I I had to look it up because I didn't know there was a specific term for it. Yeah, it Do definitely. You well, I, I had to look it up as well, uh, but it definitely was one of those lines where I was like, okay, that that's a joke that I need to understand. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds funny. Yeah, the Fuller Brush Man was a door-to-door salesman back in the 1940s, 1950s, and they would sell a lot of brush, like brushes, like to brush the, the like appliance. Like your teeth or just things? Nah, like, the, like a mop or a broom or something like that. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, that type of appliance. Turns out it was a really tough job. Seven out of ten failed to become one after the first three months. Oh, wow. Very strict guidelines or who knows. It was just a 
really rough job, I guess, to have to deal with rejection a lot. I I have such a love of really old professions like that. Like door-to-door <laughs> salesmen don't outdated, exist. Outdated, you mean? Yeah, yeah, really outdated. Like archaic. <laughs> they don't exist. Like milkmen, they don't exist. And one of my favorite sketches of all times, it was a recurring character on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. There was a writer named Brian Stack, one of my favorite writers of all time, very underrated. And he wrote a character called... Uh, Hannigan, the traveling salesman, where he would barge into Conan's audience or like his studio as like this old timey 1940s door to door salesman in a suit and a bowler hat. (laughs) He would try to sell him incredibly not outdated, but uh, clearly not right products. Okay. There's things that would not work, maybe. Yeah. um, Just harebrained inventions. Yeah. Really, really terrible (laughs) one. And he himself was like a really terrible character afternoon sir i was just passing by and jiminy christmas look at this place i haven't been this slack jawed since the ruskies sent up sputnik they sure had us eating humble pie (laughs) who the hell are you my name's hannigan and don't worry i'm not here to sell you any shoe trees anyway i uh oh sweet truman's ghost what what is it why your shoes so threadbare and misshapen why that's more shocking than a mixed race marriage Hey, you're a racist. Glad that's out of the way. So how many shoe trees do you want? I don't want any shoe trees. Let me guess, you've been burned by shoe trees in the past. Who hasn't? But as the Navajo mud hut is to the post-war split level, so are your current shoe trees to, that's right, the Excelsior 9000 shoe tree from Shoe Tech. How many crates do you want? I don't want any shoe trees at all, thank you. Well, let me guess. You've been burned by shoe trees in the past. Is that right? Well, as the Navajo Mud Hut was to the post war Actually, you up, said that already, yeah. So I did. This job has killed the part of my brain that lives in the present. Okay, that, uh, <laughs> that is truly pathetic, then. Pathetic indeed. But perhaps you could come up with a more wounding term if you use this. Boges thesaurus. Boges? I've only heard of Roges thesaurus. Oh, Roges is fine if you prefer accuracy over sheer bulk. But if you're looking for half the words at twice the weight, then Boges is simply, what's the synonym for unbeatable? Shiny. <laughs> I love that bit so much. That's I rewatch that like every year. I'm like, this That's is really good. This is amazing. Is, is that a recurring bit? Or it's a recurring just, character. Okay. And as a, the beats are all the same where he introduces really, uh-huh. really terrible products, then goes to punchlines. And then he goes to a very sexually aggressive product <laughs> that Conan obviously does not want. Also the, the Fuller Brushman um, was the name of a film, a Red Skelton yeah. movie um, where he great... plays a, a Fuller Brushman, I guess a door to door salesman. Mm-hmm. But the premise of that movie is really amazing. Yeah, so I guess the idea for the movie was, you know, Red Skelton is this door-to-door salesman who somehow becomes framed for a murder, or he becomes a murder suspect. That's immediately <laughs> so, when you hear that, like, that's a movie. That, <laughs> that's a proper movie right there. <laughs> Seems like a very, like, Larry the Cable guy or something like that. You know, it's like, like some comedian, some ridiculous... <laughs> uh, yeah, so after Adam drops that very topical zinger of a fuller brush man, <laughs> he wants him to... classic. Classic. Classic he wants him to go check out on his wife. Turns out yes. he's married. So, oh yeah, by the way, Adam's back. That's great because, uh, you know, we saw him in season one, but he's not at all in season two, is he? You know, there's there's um, ideas that it might be him because, uh, what is it, Spring Break? That's the episode where there's like sort of a thief going around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we learn in season one that Adam, you know, the town always blames their crimes on Adam. But mm-hmm. they just sort of forget about him in, in that episode. And yeah, we don't see Adam in, in season two at all, right? No, not at all. This is the first time. He's I'm back. very happy he's back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a great he's a great addition. So he comes back, kind of taste. Is that Joel's like medical toolbox? 
I think so. Yeah, sort of yeah. like it, it reminds me of what a doctor would carry. Um, you know, when they're doing a, a house visit, is that what you call it? Mm-hmm. House visit. Yeah, like what he did for Uncle Anku. Mm-hmm. So he's got. He just kind of just takes that that bag, starts walking <laughs> out the door. Oh, I, I should mention. I really like the way that scene is shot mm-hmm. when Adam sort of barges in. The camera sort of leads him. It's like dolling backwards in front of him, and then the reverse shot of that is um, the camera is like pushing Joel into the corner while Joel is like holding the, um, he's holding like a golf club mm-hmm. in de- self-defense. And it really gives you that sense of uh, Adam like rushing in an intrusion, that, that feeling of an overpowering figure entering into <laughs> That's Joel's actually really house. interesting that you bring that up because whenever we see Adam just appear at the window, mm-hmm. I thought they were going to frame it like a jump scared scene <laughs> where you just appear yeah. at it, but he actually doesn't. And yeah. I was just thinking about why that didn't scare me. Is it because of the way they shot it? Like we can see that whenever Adam appears on screen on that window, it's not like a sudden rush. Yeah. We just see it from the corner of the eye to the uh, uh, to the front of the window. Yeah, I can't completely remember how he's revealed, but you're. I think you're probably right. It's probably um, not sort of a surprise, and also. Um, a testament to Adam Arkin's acting. You know, he's got some great comedic chops there. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes us feel like we were able to laugh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's more comedic than scary. I'm wondering through your, uh, like, expertise and knowledge of filming, how do you make a scene be really scary, like a jump scare scene? And how do you make it like what Adam Arkin just did? Is it to- is it totally on a- the actor to have done oh, that? Oh, no. Or is there's it the definitely framing of the camera? A, there's definitely, like, the tools of editing that come into play as well. Jump scares, I guess, are, are maybe the cheapest. A lot of people like to talk down on jump scares. I mean, obviously, they're it's cheap thrills, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like an easy, you just get very loud, very quick, and make this uh, very scary image appear in front of the screen uh, in a massive, you know, like just a close-up or something. There's definitely ways um, in editing and, and how you compose a shot um, to sort of generate that, um, that feeling of tension, Uh, The thrill is sort of starting to build. A lot of times um, you'll see in the movie Halloween, that's like a very famous thriller, uh, you know, the Michael Myers movie, um, sort of subverting the expectation where there will be the composition of the frame will have sort of a lot of negative space on one side of the frame. And you're like, oh, if you're watching the shot for long enough, if they don't cut away, just as an audience, it's sort of a um, subconscious thing thought where okay something's gonna come out right there Mm. like there's this there's this open window that i'm staring at she's standing right in front of it something's gonna jump up from behind her and a lot of times uh in that movie halloween it sort of subverts your expectations so it gets you kind of riled up and the tension is built but then there's no the killer doesn't jump out from that side or maybe he jumps out from the other side so it's like really catching you off guard and it's just using these um sort of archetypes and this film language that we've you know we've kind of come to understand through visual language of just how you compose the frame and where the negative space is. If the frame is um, maybe leaning too, too much on one side, you're, you're just waiting for something to enter in on the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so interesting. So you're telling me that it's kind of like a psychological thing based on how our eyes track movement and the way we think about things. Yeah, I think that's a big, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, sort of. I mean, obviously we talked about it already. The, the performance is a big deal editing and the way you compose the frame. But I think what you just touched on is a huge part of it as well. The way the, the eye follows movement in a frame and, um, you know, the space of a frame. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, we follow Adam 
all the way back to his, I guess his shack now. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this isn't the same spot as last time, though, right? This is a new. It can't be because yeah, because he tur- he like they tore down his house, remember? Or whenever they came back to find it, yeah, it was just the beams. Um, before we get there, can we talk really quickly about the conversation that Joel and Adam have in the truck as they're driving? Oh to, yeah, to go meet Eve. Mm-hmm. I really liked this scene. I think it's a a really great bit of writing. Adam is sort of talking up Eve as the most incredible, lovely person that he's ever met. And you can kind of see that Joel can, can sort of tell that maybe Adam is hiding something or maybe overcompensating for some reason. Um, but he goes along with it. You know, he doesn't want to offend Adam. And, and at the end of this whole conversation, Joel remarks, oh, she sounds wonderful. And Adam replies, you've never been married, have you? And they sort of share this glance together. And, and there's like, you know, there's no talk. It just sort of implies, it indicates sort of a deeper meaning, something to the effect of, you know, like marriage is prison or, or something like that, you know? I thought that was really interesting because he's saying one thing, but he's sort of implying a whole other thing. Yeah, I actually think it's really interesting that he says that because if it wasn't for the deleted scenes that showed an extra scene on here... Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I was just going to get into that. Go ahead. Yeah, you would realize that he was reading the letters that Elaine had, which they would have revealed later in the episode, even mm-hmm. without the deleted scenes. And then when you rewatch the episode, or if you just have a really good memory and you remember mm-hmm. that he said that particular line, it makes a whole lot of sense why he even says, yeah. you've never been married, have you? He knows the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, re- I really do like that though. And he's alluding to that, you know, marriage is prison, which is kind of like a hokey thing though at this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like really hokey. It's like women, Am I right, guys? And it's like, eh, I'm like, all right, 1950s comedian. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny, though, because he's, he's like setting it up as one thing, and the joke is uh, it's sort of like the opposite of what he's saying. But another crazy thing about that deleted scene is that they cut the scene, the, the way they cut the scene in the actual episode gives it that sort of twist of an ending that I'm just trying to describe. But if mm-hmm. you watch the full deleted scene, Adam continues to go on, and say, like, you've never been married, so you don't understand how amazing it is to be in love this way. So the intention that I got from from that scene watching the episode, from that scene having sort of that twist, um, was actually not in the actual text. It was all in the edit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because if you watch the full scene, yeah, yeah. If you watch the full scene, it plays out as Adam really is in love um, deeply with... Maybe they should have kept that, though. No, I, I like, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I honestly don't know. Well, but makes, I think it's uh, really interesting that they they can form that um, idea um, out of something that actually wasn't there. It wasn't written that way and it wasn't performed that way. The editor just like cut the scene at a certain point and you have this new sort of twist ending for the scene. Yeah, a new is, it's just a totally different perspective. If you kept it... It would give you... If you kept it, it, it would, yeah, it would give you more... Um, the resolution would be deeper whenever they with the turn around with each other. Elaine and... and yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's a crazy deleted scene. Mm-hmm. So we go to the new place, the little right. new shack. New shack. we meet the wife, and it's played by Valerie Mahaffey. Yeah, this is the one that you've been waiting for because you I saw have. that... That one of the Emmys that this show has garnered is for her performance in this episode. She won an Emmy for this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. I know her from West Wing. She plays Tawny Cryer. And I really love how she played that role. I thought she knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I remember we've talked about this off air, but I'm not a huge fan of Eve. Um, I think I, I'm coming around to her maybe. But uh, I remember because when we would watch the West Wing 
that episode. You love that scene. You love that episode. And I would always say, ah, I don't know. It just kind of like sits with me the wrong way because I know her from Northern Exposure and I really don't like her character in, in that show. But yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's a critic and she got an <laughs> Emmy. So obviously there's sort of an objective qualifier that she's great. You know, yeah, she does, I, she does a good job. I love her. Uh, I love the way that she acts, her movements. She's just such a good actress. Her vocal mannerisms, uh, she had one particular line that I loved where Joel saying, like, you take these chains off me right now. And she goes, <laughs> no. <laughs> the, way, <laughs> the way she says it killed me. I was like, oh, this is great. So I love yeah. her character so Yeah, so much. tell us about Eve. Who is Eve in yeah. Northern Exposure? So Eve apparently is this hypochondriac. She is mm-hmm. just really, really worried about her health and her body. And some of it may be based on truth. But Mm -hmm. largely from what we can tell and from Joel's medical professional diagnosis, she's just overreacting and she's just, it's all within her head. Yeah, there's so many, she has so many different ailments. I love, there's a line in here, uh, you know, Adam is sort of giving her gruff because she's complaining about all these illnesses and they're in front of Joel. He's like, yeah, tell, tell him about the hat disease. You know, and she's like, hat disease? No, it's called beret syndrome. Um, There's lots of yelling. uh, So I guess that's fun for actors. Um, It kind of becomes one note for me in a a way. Maybe that's part of why I didn't like Eve at first. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, it is a lot of fun for actors to do. But a lot of times, like, you know, just because you can yell doesn't mean you're an amazing actor. But they do some really fun stuff. And they get to really have fun with it. Yeah, and then the episode turns on the twist and it turns into Stephen King's misery. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Eve smacks him over the head with this big cast iron, right? Or some sort of piece of metal. Yeah, some sort and... of cooking equipment, which totally should have, that's, I don't think I should have knocked should've him out. maybe done concussion, you know, he probably yeah. had a concussion after this. <laughs> so he's chained up now. She, He's like sort of her, um, her 24-7 on-call physician now. Yeah, I don't know how she thought that plan through. But I like that she even thought that that was a viable option. Yeah. Um, turned out that she was working at Nope, spelled with a K, according to her. Oh, yeah. No, Nope. How nope. does she pronounce it? She says you you pronounce the, you know, Knopf. It's what you pronounce the K, but don't pronounce the P. Or is, is it that the how other she way? says it? Oh, God. We got to <laughs> we gotta listen to that soundbite again. One second. I'll find it. Yeah. I was in publicity. I was an editor, corner office at Knopf. It is Knopf, by the way. Say the K, not the P. Knopf. It is Knopf. It's Knopf. That's how you say it. Pronounce the K, not the P. That's so hilarious. Yeah, I didn't know about that uh, book publishing company, but I looked into them, and they have published so many Pulitzer and Nobel Prize literatures. Yeah, Yeah. they did John Updike's Rabbit series. Mm, They did The Movie Goer, The Town, and so many more that I'm just not going to list. Those are just the ones that I thought that people might know about. Mm -hmm. So she was uh, working for them, sounds like, and... I like this sort of, um, this, it's what you call Pope in the pool. It's like whenever you do, you, um, dish out a lot of exposition, but while mm-hmm. you're doing it, you offer some sort of eye candy, something fun to watch. So Eve is, is telling Joel how she first met Adam this whole time as she's sort of giving this monologue, Joel is cartoonishly trying to like pick up a fork in his mouth and use that fork to somehow pick the locks on his manacles. And all the while she's sort of giving him all this backstory. Yeah, he's trying to get out of it. And so it turns out that Joel hadn't ate for 
16 hours something ridiculous yeah and she's so (laughs) she's so pleasant about it she's like oh come on like you need to eat something she feeds him a cassoulet right is that how you pronounce Mm -hmm. it cassoulet cassoulet um i've never had that before it looks really good from what i can tell on the show once again for the first time last month it yeah really pretty delicious it tastes really good yeah it's a great like sort of stewy I bet she says it's better the second day, you know, the next day. I bet, I bet she's right. Interesting. Yeah, and it, it falls down out of his lap. We're like, no, I think he falls down. Joel falls down into the floor? Oh, yeah. No, are you talking about this is when he's trying to pick his locks? Yeah, this is when he's trying to pick his locks, and she's feeding him, and then Adam finally comes back. Yeah, I love his, his line. Huh. The hypochondriac and the doctor. I'll call Noel Coward. He'll write a play. Yeah, so he's going to... Call No Coward right a play about that. <laughs> yeah. And I feel bad. I only know No Coward because he's referenced quite a lot. Yeah, in, in like Woody Sorkin's. Allen movies. And, oh, in, in Woody in Allen? Sorkin is he? Too. I guess so, I didn't yeah. Know that. that line, the No Coward play, is uh, used in some other Woody Allen movie, too. Oh. I've never read anything about No Coward. I want to, though. He is an influential playwright. I've seen um, Hay Fever performed, but I've never read any of his plays. Just had the fortunate opportunity to see one he seems like i'm pretty sure he's like part of the vaudeville days i don't know i guess it's kind of like a screwball uh romantic comedy type uh yeah he's not like super serious like uh, eugene o'neill or anything like that yeah i mean yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i can assume again i haven't read any but yeah Yeah. it seems from from all these context clues (laughs) so they come in and that's when joel decides to become the decider yeah i think it's interesting how joel how does joel take control of the situation here because adam is sort of a very domineering presence eve has him in chains essentially and there's somehow uh joel gets him to quiet down it's probably one of those situations where because Joel was such an outsider, he has such a strong voice in this situation. And he even has a line on that where he says, you're arguing this much in front of a total stranger? You guys have no shame. And because of that, he, he's allowed to take control of the situation when they're both screaming at each other. They kind of, um, they can they can sort of break out of their own monotonous routine and sort of see it from an outsider's perspective. And maybe they are a little bit ashamed. My other... Um, idea of like how Joel takes control of the situation is it looks like they're about to argue with him, but he cuts them off and says, make some coffee. He tells Adam to make some coffee. And that's, um, that, that demand that, that, uh, that Joel gives, it's something that is maybe like a welcome challenge for Adam. It's something that Adam wants to do because he likes to make food. He likes, it brings him joy. He's something that he's good at. So by giving him this sort of like very strong command, it's sort of, um, you know, convincing him to do something that he already wants to do is like, oh yeah, okay, I'll I'll start a pot of coffee. What do you want? Mm. Are, you know, Kona blend or something. <laughs> you know, he gives him like two options. Yeah. So then we go and they kind of keep referencing the things as classic bickering, like classic therapist bickering. He's like, oh, I told you not to talk when I'm talking or let her finish her thing, mm-hmm. blah, 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 stuff like that. Very reminiscent of uh, the pilot where Joel plays a couple's therapist. Yeah. Yeah. He's really doing does. it all over again. Except this time, the resolution of, of his sort of, his verdict of, of the situation is um, that they should just get divorced. Like they should split up. Here's my decision. The two of you are a disaster. In, in, together, you're beyond description. There, there's nothing worth saving here. You go one way, you go the other. Split up the appliances, split up the forests, split up the mountains. You go east of the pipeline, you go west of the pipeline and, and never ever see one another again. It's really funny because... 
they're sitting across from him. And, and then when it cuts to the shot of Joel, it's like a slow push in, like slowly getting closer and closer to him. And uh, he's basically berating them. He starts with Adam and lists off all of his negative qualities, a pathological liar, yada, yada, and mm-hmm. Eve, the hypochondriac. And then his final analysis is you guys should just never meet each other again, like split up and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed this because I just rewatched the scene. Oh yeah, it fades out, and then the next plot line happens, and it comes back, and it turns out that Joel wakes up from the table. They wake him up. Uh huh. So he got got onto the table somehow. Is that what you're saying? No, like his head was against the table, just like sleeping, oh. using it as a pillow. So it turns out that even after Joel gave them that great marriage <laughs> he went back advice, to sleep. they didn't let him out. They just kept him in chains. <laughs> They're like, hey, wake up. Or his like his head trauma just like he just passed out because <laughs> he's concussed. I just realized that. It's like they didn't even let him out of the chains. Adam was okay like, with that. Adam was like, okay keeping him in chains. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. Um yeah. So, so finally, they, they still don't let him out of chains, right? But they're they're going to bring him back to civilization or something. No, he gets they finally, out of there. They finally let him out. They they talk oh, to right. Robert and they say like, "Oh, we talked it out. You know, we're actually still good." Um, <laughs> like, good. what do you know about marriage? And then yeah. that's when it's revealed that he knew about the Elaine letter, which is and what we she, talked about with the deleted scene, sort of. Yeah, um, but, but without and, that scene, it, we we find it out here that they mm-hmm. they must have found uh, found out somehow about the Elaine letter and. Joel. Yeah, and they question his judgment. Why should we take advice from you if you can't have a relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they she frees him with the, uh, it's like a hacksaw type of situation. Yeah, that's right. She says, um, like, you know, spread your arms, we'll, or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll saw it off. So she didn't have keys to it. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was no way for him to get what out of this situation. Plan? Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, so that kind of wraps up that scene. The way that that plot line resolves is we touched on it. When Maggie finds him next, he's still trying to like get out of cuz the manacles are still on. The chains are cut, but the manacles are still on. <laughs> Joel yeah. is like picking his manacles in his office when Maggie comes and wants to, you know, ask him out to dinner. Mm-hmm. So, overall, I really hope that we see more of her. Thought she was a great character. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like I said, Adam is a recurring character. Eve will come back. You know, she won an Emmy. She's going to be back. Yeah, I'm all about Eve. <laughs> you know, I still haven't seen that movie. I, I just got a copy of it. Oh, uh, you even have a, I, I want to watch it. I haven't seen yeah. it either. I, it's referenced so much, though. That's right. And it's supposed to be really good. We'll do a, that's another Patreon episode. So we're <laughs> down the line. So now we're going to get to the final plot line where we're introduced to another character that was introduced in the past. Yeah, so going let's let's uh, reel it back to the beginning of the episode. We have um, this is our sort of C plot, you know, you know, just mm-hmm. secondary plot to whatever's going on. Samansky is back, uh, Officer Samansky and Maurice are. I guess they're an item now. You know, they're shooting targets out in an open field, and they're kissing each other and embracing. And yeah, I think the last time we saw Samansky, she was sort of turning down Maurice's advances. Maurice being madly in love with her. And now it seems that um, maybe they've come to some terms and they're they're in a wonderful relationship, it seems. Yeah. Uh, he's very close to asking her to marry him when he goes and talks to Chris about it. That's right. Yeah, that's a pretty cool scene. Yeah, so Chris is in K-Bear and Maurice is trying to introduce Chris to the idea that, you know, I'm seeing Szymanski. Take a look at her. Like they, they peer out through the open window of um, K-Bear 
Mm-hmm. You can see her. She's ticketing Chris's <laughs> Harley. I love that. And Chris is not entertained, but Maurice is clearly in love. Chris gives the uh, a really great quote. Love is like friendship caught on fire. Bruce Lee. I was going to say the deleted scenes about this mm-hmm. was really awesome. Yeah, go ahead. So this deleted scene is still within the same context of... Chris and Maurice speaking in the studio. And Maurice wants Chris, assuming that he's officiating the wedding, he wants <laughs> yeah. him to use the MacArthur's last speech to Congress. Right. Because there's, there's two things. They talk about uh, King Henry V and then mm-hmm. MacArthur's speech, which I, I didn't look into. I'm glad you, you've looked into it. What, what, yeah. What's going on? It's the old soldiers never die. They just fade away. That mm. was MacArthur's farewell speech. Wow. The neat thing about this is that I learned a new phrase today. Okay. Apparently, that farewell speech is what's called a snow clone. Hmm. Yeah, a snow clone is a cliche and phrase template that can be used and recognized in multiple variants. So, for example, you can say, in space, no one can hear you X or oh. to X or not to X. Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Snow clone, never heard of that. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. There's always a term for something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In this particular scenario, it would be old policemen never die, they just cop out. <laughs> nice, yeah. That's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, also in this scene, I forget what they're talking about, but you know, obviously it's, it's clear that Chris can see Maurice is in love. He says, oh, you must be listening to uh, those Robert Bly tapes I gave you or something. <laughs> Soul, soulmate? What, what are they... Oh, that's what he says. He's like, you finally found your soulmate. I I didn't know who Robert Bly was until hearing this. I didn't either. Maurice says something about, um, you know, I kind of gave up on that. He was talking about listening through the ear in your stomach. And that just sounds really intriguing. But according to Wikipedia, Robert Bly is the leader of the mythopoetic men's movement, um, which is sort of a self-help therapeutic workshops, retreats for men, things like that. I guess. Um, I'm still kind of confused. Do you know anything about Robert Bly? I have no earthly idea who this man is. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very fascinating. It sounds... Hmm. But anyway, sort of, you know, it's, it's very Chris in the morning sounding. Another thing to note about this scene, the song in the background is called Mana O Pili by Diana Aki. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's like sort of this Hawaiian sounding song. It's really beautiful. Um, and it is, in fact, on the... DVD, you know, it's from the original mm-hmm. broadcast. It hasn't been replaced by Muzak, thankfully. It's a great song. Very beautiful. Very um, love-inspiring, you know? Yeah, Chris has got a great music taste. We kind of skipped over this scene, but um, earlier in the episode, we're inside of Maurice's house. It looks amazing, like the cozy, low, warm lights, mm-hmm. and there's this bounteous feast on the table. Very tasteful classical music playing. Maurice is raising a toast to Hauling and Shelley, And it finally seems that he's kind of come around. We can finally close the book on this weird love triangle. He's finally congratulating them on finding love and sort of bringing his own uh, to the table. You know, he's got Szymanski with him. He says, this is, you know, this is my love. We can all kind of share this mutual community. They're kind of sidelined in this episode, uh, Holling and Shelley. The only thing that we can get from it is that once again, we can see a little bit of an age difference between them or just a little power dynamic because yeah uh, shelly says like uh duck blinds like you've never taken me to duck blinds and then holling goes like you want to go to duck blinds kind of like he's assuming (laughs) her thing though it's played the comedic effect and i even laughed at that because he's saying like i I know that you don't like duck blinds like come on don't do this to me (laughs) but yeah i can't deny there's something weird about holling and shelly but 
you're right. They don't, they're not in this episode for very long. But what happens here? You know, everything's going very great for Barbara Szymanski and for Maurice together. Mm -hmm. But what happens? What's sort of like the wrench? So this was a really, really interesting ethical discussion because it Mm -hmm. turns out that while she was staying over at Maurice's place, she caught the voicemail of Maurice's accountant. And it's asking him simply to reclassify some capital gains into another section so that he can get a bigger deduction. Mm-hmm. And to Officer Szymanski, that looks like a loophole, and therefore he's abusing the the law. He's, he's bending it. And yeah. to her, that's not okay. It's all black or white to her. It's either you are following the law or you are breaking the law. There is no in-between. Right. Well, real fast, you have some accounting knowledge yeah education can you kind of lay this out for us i am (laughs) like i have a degree (laughs) you're you're an accountant yeah can you kind of uh, clear up some of this jargon what's going on here yeah i actually wrote my final senior project on this very situation kind of wow okay okay yeah where it was talking about tax loopholes and i wrote about shelters like offshore tax break shelters and it's kind of the same concept where the loopholes are a benefit to incredibly wealthy people and the reason why is because they have the means to hire an army of an accountants mm-hmm. and these bigger firms can hire more accountants than the smaller businesses. Therefore they're able to find out and comb out more little loopholes for them to use. And they're totally legal within the tax code. If you can play the system, hmm. you're totally good. You're just going to get audited more by the IRS, but wow. it's legal. So what Maurice is saying is technically true. He's not breaking the law in any case. In fact, it's written specifically so that he's not breaking the law, but it's immoral and it's unethical to do it. But it's such an interesting discussion because is it That's really? crazy. Can you help us understand like what maybe Szymanski, how she sees this? Like what about it might be immoral? It's the best way you can boil this down is that are you, are you paying your fair share of taxes? Hmm. That's really what it amounts to. And Maurice is doing something where he is not paying his quote-unquote fair share of taxes. Now, this is not a political podcast. We are not planning money. Uh, We are not meant to discuss any of these issues. But there is merit to Maurice's argument, and there's also merit to To Officer Szymanski's, depending on who you talk to. But overall, whether, you know, whoever is right in this situation, we find out sort of in Szymanski's monologue later that, you know, whether Maurice is right or wrong, He's sort of like stomping on everything that defines Szymanski. And she even says, like, I I like I can't do anything else. I am the law. You know, that's like that's me. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. I'm not a cop because I wanna be. I'm a cop because I have to be. I was called to the law. I'm its servant. I eat, breathe, sleep the law. It courses through my body like blood. And when you stepped on the law, Maurice, you stepped on me. Really quickly, while we're still on the same topic, there's a a great quote that I always liked from John Stewart, who said, why is it that if you take advantage of a corporate tax break, you're a smart businessman, but if you take advantage of something so that you don't go hungry, you're a moocher. Yeah. And I really like that line, (laughs) um, despite whatever political leanings that you have. Yeah. Yeah. So That's great. Szymanski is, the way that Szymanski defines herself is that she is a strong belief or a strong follower of the law. So for Mm -hmm. Maurice to even pull this stunt, this like kind of morally gray area, which is what this whole episode is about, it's, you know, to spit in her face. Oh, yeah. You were talking about you kind of wanted to sort of loop our storylines together. What's sort of the, it kind of hinges on that Ruth Ann scene, right? Yeah, it hinges on that, where there isn't necessarily a right answer to this. 
and people can do mistakes. They can bend the mm-hmm. way that they interpret something. So for Ruth Ann's case, she had affairs, but the way that she turned out at the end, you could be construed as a net positive. And the same thing with Maurice is like, well, he's not necessarily breaking the law, but it kind of is. But, you know, we can kind of see that both sides are right. Yeah. So that's kind of what I feel is the central thesis of this episode. Now, granted, now that I'm saying this out loud, <laughs> there could be different ones. Like, I, I, don't, I don't believe I actually have the right answer to this. It's just my interpretation of it. People might have different interpretations of the episode. That was just the way I interpret it. But now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't think this is necessarily bulletproof, what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, take it with a grain of salt. These are just like, <laughs> we're, we're not right. We're never right. You know, we only have our own opinions. So don't take anything as the final word, the final say. I do like the rain in that scene, though, whenever he's going to her house. Yeah, that is a cool scene. We get to see a little bit of uh, this person that she mentions before, Tony from The Force. He's got like <laughs> aviators and like an undershirt and boxers. And he's sort of like sitting in the background. But she shoes him out and um, Maurice comes inside that's true. The rain is great because Maurice is standing in the rain. You can see it dripping off of his uh, leather jacket mm-hmm. and sometimes falling from the brim of his hat. And you hear the rain when they're inside. Yeah. It's a it's a cool little breakup sort of scene. What is the resolution here? Because Maurice, I think, he's trying to put his money where his mouth is and he says, I'm going to donate this much money to um, the police force. You know, this is why I believe in justice. But obviously you can't buy, you can't buy that. Uh, this is kind of a loose-loose situation, I find, because she claims that he's doing it so that he can get a bigger deduction, which is true if he files with that, but he would have not done it in the first place, which meant that that charity or that organization that he is donating to would have lost out on that twenty to $30,000. So whatever his motive was... And however much he was saving on it, he would have still given twenty to thirty thousand dollars to an organization that could have really used it. The positive net gain would have been better than the deduction that he would have gotten for sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I feel like Officer Szymanski kind of painted them into a corner or setting him up for failure with that line because I still think that's a really nice and kind thing he was trying to do. It's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, Szymanski is a bit of a zealot, you know. So she's she's kind of she's just got to be kind of stuck in her ways. Like she can't, she wouldn't accept that, you know. And that's just her. That's that's her core, you know? Mm-hmm. I will say, I remember when we first introduced Szymanski, I said she like probably wasn't one of my favorite characters. I really like her a lot in this in this episode. She's not, she's no more, you know, just like a cartoon character. I think that was kind of my criticism of her. In this episode, she gets to let her hair down metaphorically and literally, you know, she looks <laughs> different. She doesn't yeah. just look like the same old thing every scene. And she feels like a real person. Uh, You know, she had a little bit of that in Spring Break, but we really get to see her other sides, I think, or more sides of her in this episode. Well, let's move on to our next segment. You know, uh, now's the time that we introduce the show to someone who has never seen it before. I've got our our good friend, uh, Tyler, who you'll see, you know, we've been knowing each other for a while, but somehow I've never recommended the show to him. I've (laughs) kind of slipped my mind, but (laughs) here he is now. Let's, Let's hear his thoughts. Hey, Lee and Charles. This is Tyler. For those of you who don't know, uh, me and me, Lee and Charles go way back. We went to high school together, and uh, they asked me to be a part of this podcast, which uh, I'm honored, especially looking back at the previous guest list. There's a lot of people I love on that list, a lot of really close friends, and uh, I'm glad I get to participate as well. Uh, they did so 
uh, despite the fact I've never even heard of this show. Uh, I know Lee suggest, has suggested this show to a lot of our friends. He never suggested it to me. How dare you? Um, but uh, I was happy to kind of jump into it. I'm really glad they gave me a season premiere because a lot of storylines are, are just kind of being begun. Uh, and I was able to kind of sink my teeth in and not feel completely lost about what was going on. I, I, I really kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed this show as a, just kind of an overall view. Um, it kind of felt like a, a more homey Twin Peaks. Uh, a lot of people in a very remote area of the world uh, who have, they, they, they talk much smarter than you would expect people from this remote an area to be. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was quippy. I think it's great for a sitcom. Uh, it may not be realistic, but I mean, who's really looking for realistic from a sitcom anyway? Um, I really like the characters. I think probably my favorite was Maurice as he kind of he, he embodied a stereotypical Trump supporter before tw 24 years before Trump became president of the United States. I thought that was uh, really funny and timely. Uh, he even mentions Trump. And I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was good. Uh, I, I liked the relationship he had with that woman. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but I thought that was uh, it, it was a, it was clever. I really liked the characters. I liked the way that these two played off each other and how much he kind of got off on the fact that she was so uh, true to her values. And uh, it kind of bites him at the end uh, because he can't. He he wants to make more money, and he he values his his tax savings more than he does his relationship with her. Uh, and he really doesn't even get that till the end of the episode. I'm kind of, I want to go back and rewatch this show and I'm curious to see if he kind of uh, resolves that and, and, and fixes his values moving forward. Um, Fleischman, I thought that he, th this was an interesting storyline. He gets kidnapped by uh, what looks to be a homeless man with a very uh, refined palate. And uh, his, his girlfriend, or his wife rather, Eve, Adam and Eve, um, and I thought this was kind of clever. I thought it was a good way to kind of show uh, a literal form of what's going on throughout the episode with a lot of characters. A lot of people are trapped uh, either by their conventions or their love of wealth or their, their past relationships. And I think this was kind of a clever way to kind of embed that theme in a very literal sense. Um, and uh, I thought, that I, I, again, I really like the characters, uh, just very... Uh, exaggerated versions of people that you would never see in the real world but again that's what that's the beauty of a sitcom you can kind of create these players and play with them uh and maggie i thought uh she had a, probably the most important storyline moving uh forward into the in, in this episode i think uh she clearly has gone through the loss of a loved one and that's compounded by the fact that her her previous loved one who's who's dead apparently was unfaithful with a number of women and uh, she's not sure how many i do think it was really funny that uh in her head it was 2,500 women. That's how she was able to cope with it was the fact that uh, he's been with 2,500 women in this dream that she has. And I, I thought that was clever. I'm really interested to see how that goes moving forward. Also, going back to Adam and Eve, a really funny uh, little, a, a little note. At the end uh, of their arc, you see them walking through the woods back to the truck, and she's complaining about being yellow and thinking it's jaundice. And, and Adam says, have you been eating carrots? And she gets really quiet and says, no. Whereas I'm pretty sure like three scenes prior, whenever they're, he, uh, Joel is chained up, she's eating just like a bowl of what looks to be like cooked carrots. And I'm pretty sure that that's the origin of that. So I think that was a clever little uh, hint that uh, maybe, she, I mean, she's obviously a hypochondriac, but maybe she's uh, a, a little bit, uh, she, she's exaggerating for her own self-worth a little bit as well. Um, well, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I look forward to watching more episodes in the future. If y'all ever need me back on, I'd be glad to do it. And uh, I hope y'all have a wonderful podcast. And uh, I'm glad I could help do this once again. Uh, thanks, guys.
All right, that was Tyler's analysis, and I got to say, I love it. Yeah. I like the thing that he talked about with Maurice and Officer Samanskay because he's talking about that he loves her for the values that she embodies, but it comes back to bite him because she's Mm -hmm. holding true to them. She won't bend on them. Yeah. And that's a really great observation by him. Yeah. And like how he says, it's sort of like ahead of his time Trump supporter. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> invokes Donald Trump's name. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and, and another thing that was really interesting, I never even really kind of wrapped my head around it, but uh, Joel's plot line in this episode is sort of, uh, according to Tyler, it's like an externalization of the feeling of being trapped. Like Joel is literally mm-hmm. trapped and all these other characters um, are are trapped in their own sort of circumstances. Yeah, that was really nice of him to bring out too. And he talked about these people from a sitcom perspective, how mm-hmm. they're unrealistic, but you don't watch sitcoms to be realistic. You watch them because they embody some sort of personality or trait and they play off of that. Yeah. And because of that, they're able to get a lot of these themes into this episode because we as an audience member understand that, oh, it's this character. He's like this type of thing. He's not yeah. a real human being. The, that like I archetype. thought it was a really great observation from him. What's the old adage or the saying? It's like movies are like life just with all the boring bits cut out. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like sitcoms, you know, people in sitcoms are like normal, but they're just a little more heightened and exciting. Yeah, I love that. I also like that he picked up on the fact that Maggie was maybe projecting within her own mind that the yeah. inordinate amount of men, uh, women, sorry, women that Rick has slept with might be just a way for her to cope. Yeah, so that was both you and Tyler had that read and, and I kind of took it more literal, but obviously like, you know, you could, this proves that you could have, you could take it literally, you could take it as something that she believes in her mind to help her, <laughs> I guess, you know, sleep at night. I don't know, but yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, now that I think about it, I don't actually have a good reason to why we didn't ask Tyler at the beginning. <laughs> I, I guess it's because we... We've wanted to have him on for a while, right? We actually we did, did want to have him on. We just I think it was mass. one of those, like, we knew he would come on. Yeah. Like, he was a surefire shot, so if we gave him a really good episode, we can get a really great analysis out of it. And we gave him the season premiere, and he's right. Season premieres, you're able to actually... It's like a catch-up. We're able to see yeah. these characters. It's a good little, it kind of fills you in on maybe what you've missed. Um, what do you think about this episode as a season premiere? I really liked it, to be honest. I like that it put Joel into such an out-of-the-box situation where he gets chained up. Yeah. Um, I like that it was I think a reevaluation pretty... of Maggie's uh, yeah. love life. What were you going to say? Oh, sorry. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was just saying, I think it, it does a really good job of uh, exposition, whereas... I think season two premiere, I, I like way more than this premiere, mm-hmm. but season two premiere begins with like a voiceover narration by Chris. All the exposition is dumped at you immediately, where this episode uh, really kind of uh, dishes it out pretty expertly, pretty deftly. Like it, it's kind of hidden throughout the episode. They don't front load it all at once. It does a really, really great job. Yeah, they had to carry over from the finale of season two. They were trying to finish up a lot of those lines because they didn't just start yeah. anew when they kind of yeah. like vaguely reference season or two. Or Medias like Res. They really picked up from the end of season two. That was, that was pretty cool. Overall, I really enjoyed it. I hope that they keep with the tone that they've established mm-hmm. in this episode because I, I, I can't place it yet. I need to watch more episodes, but I think <laughs> there is a tonal shift right now okay. between season one and two Something's and happening. season three. Yeah. yeah. Someone changed their hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we talked about it. Like season two is all about the dream sequences. Uh, season three, you know, we're getting into something new. So it's exciting. I really quickly, I do want to point out um, 
thought it was amazing that Tyler noticed this as well. Uh, at the end of sort of the, um, when Eve and Adam and Eve are walking Joel back to civilization <gasps> and she says she thinks she's she's yellow. She thinks she's got jaundice. Adam asks her if she's eaten any carrots. And yeah, it's sort of like that scene earlier, the cassoulet sort of looks like it has carrots in it. In fact, when she said cassoulet and I saw the bowl, I was like, that's not cassoulet. It looks like it has carrots all in it. But <laughs> I, upon further viewing, it kind of looks like maybe those are little bits of sausage um, or pork or something, which you know would be in, in, in a traditional cassoulet. But it does actually look like carrots. Like maybe the props person or the person who prepared that bowl put carrots in and maybe that's a thing that can go in cassoulet. I like yeah, that theory. I've, I love that theory that she was eating carrots. Yeah. Like just a bowl. Because it does look like so many chopped carrots, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly She is the what, cause of her own failure. Anyone with the Blu-ray, please write in immediately. Watch that scene. Let us know. Is it carrots? Like the high definition version of this of this episode. Is it carrots? Is it sausage? What is she eating there? Yeah, please email us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Well, there you go. Um, man, we're back in it. I'm so glad to be back. It's been a while since we've recorded like a full-on episode. So yeah, here we are. Next episode is going to be titled Only You. Any, um, any theories? Hmm. Well, I don't know any musical songs called Only You. Mm-hmm. So... There's that, but <laughs> um, hmm. Joel and Maggie, title. right? It's like a it yeah, sounds it seems like, like a, romantic a Joel and Maggie thing. thing, but maybe not. Maybe it could be like only you, Ed, in this love of film. Maybe, maybe God, that's we got to get some Ed back. Can get I get him see back? Um, all right, Charles. Well, all right, man. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for uh, podcasting. Yeah. So next week, I'll see you. Hmm? See you next week, man. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Tyler for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. All right, look. In Kudo philosophy, you don't really aim at the target because you got to become one with it. Then... There's really nothing to aim at.